I think really nailing the why of the product is everything. If you can't answer it succinctly and simply for yourself, and if you can't present it in you know 10 seconds elevator pitch, um, you're going to struggle. You can have all the systems in the world. You can have all the paid advertising in the world. But if you can't nail that why, that trigger, I think you're going to struggle. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Upflip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Freeman. And today, I'll be talking to Case Kenny, owner of New Mindset an online business that has generated more than $5 million in sales since starting in June 2020. Case worked in corporate sales for many years, but his true passion is mindfulness. And that passion has been the driving force for his business growth. He started teaching mindfulness in 2018 and launched his first guided journal on Indiegogo in January of 2020, opening his Shopify store a few months later. Today, he has five guided journals available with a sixth due to release next month, and he sold more than 300,000 individual copies in less than two years. On today's episode, I'll get the inside scoop on how Case achieved these phenomenal numbers so quickly after launching his business. We'll find out how he built a customer base, what sets his journals apart from others on the market, and what struggles he overcame to grow the business to seven figures in its first year. To get things started, Case, Kenny, thanks for joining us here on the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Can you tell our viewers a bit more about when and why you started New Mindset? Yeah, I mean, personal wise, I've been always very drawn to the topic of mindfulness, always have been. It's a passion of mine to then be creative with the things that I'm interested in through writing and and creating and all those things. And, you know, I I had a podcast that I had started in mid 2018 around the topics of mindfulness, helping other people, you know, be more mindful in their life, be more self-aware, know their worth and things like that. And I'd been doing that and it was, you know, privileged to say it was very successful. And I was like, I want to create something tangible, something that that people can touch and feel that can help them in their lives. And I settled on a journal. You know, what better way to bring mindfulness to life than the ultimate mindfulness practice, which is journaling. So that was kind of the catalyst for me to sit down and create this product, to bring it to market, and then to to scale it. Bringing that physical product to market is obviously very different from launching a podcast, which can obviously be done for zero dollars in some instances. Not sure the quality will be at a zero dollar investment, but in building out a physical product, what does that startup cost look like? How much did you initially invest to get started? Yeah, so so I did launch it on Indiegogo to your introduction. And the, the idea there was, of course, to minimize my upfront cost there. So like all in to start the business, I invested about 10000 in the manufacturing of a bulk order of journals. And then I also invested about $7,500 in marketing and another 3000 in different creative services to bring everything together. So all in, it was around a twenty grand investment upfront <laughs> before seeing the product, before really bringing it to market. But luckily, I kind of mitigated some of that through the Indiegogo process, which enabled me to know that I would be able to recoup a certain amount. And that's how that's how it started. Can you talk us through that initial Indiegogo process? Any tips or tricks you might have for someone who might want to go that route in terms of launching a physical product? Yeah, I mean, Indiegogo, Kickstarter, like any crowdfunding campaign, the key really is to get pre-sales. And uh, ultimately, I didn't even do that well on Indiegogo, to be honest. I think gross sales from that was just shy of 40 grand. So it definitely didn't meet my expectations. And I think looking back, it's because I just didn't have the volume of pre-sales that's required. But yeah, when it comes to those platforms, it's all about getting the pre-sales so that when it launches, you you smash your goal and then you have certain incentives in place to get sharing, to get cross-sells and things like that. And, you know, hopefully you can go viral, but really the key is those pre-sales. 
And then when you transitioned over into the the Shopify storefront, is the most significant cost there the physical inventory or are there other costs that someone should be aware of as they maybe look at opening a Shopify store? Yeah, I think if you're just starting off, yeah, principally it's going to be your inventory costs, whatever your cogs are to to get that product and then to get it to your customer, however you're doing that logistically wise. I think once as you start to scale, you're going to need to develop kind of what I would call a Shopify stack. That's everything from the Shopify cost itself to the additional add-ons and apps like email marketing and different apps that allow you to do upsells and cross-sells, you know, different visuals that you might want to display. So it could start to add up, but principally, yeah, the biggest cost is going to be your inventory costs, and then, you know, however you get it to your customer. So pre-Indiegogo and obviously pre-Shopify by definition there, uh, what what kind of market or customer research did you do before getting started? Yeah, luckily for me, I mean, to my point, I had the podcast and the podcast is very specific. I talk about mindfulness. I, I've been talking about mindfulness in different areas of life and, and relationships and career and personal life and all those things. And, you know, I'd been doing that for about a year and a half before I, you know, really even considered to build out a product. So through that process, through the process of the podcast and then growing social media through that, I also was growing an email list. I had a pretty good kind of call and response there with an audience to understand what they wanted at minimum to know what topics resonated with them, which which is really, really helpful because then when you know the topics, you know their trigger points, their pain points, and then you could build out a product to address it. And that's kind of what I did there. And I also myself was a journaler and I had spent a lot of time basically devouring every journal I can get my hands on, um, really dissecting what I thought they did well, what I thought they didn't do well. And then I came out with my own, which addressed those pain points in addition to just really listening to my podcast audience. For you, was the the journal product more of an outgrowth of listening to to an already built customer base as opposed to having an idea for a product and then finding the customer base? Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew I knew who it was for. I had the customers. I mean, when I launched it, obviously, my first customers were those people. And I learned a lot through that. I think I did eventually learn what speaks to those customers. I think initially, I didn't really nail the angle, the marketing, but they you know, supported me enough to, to buy it anyway. And I think through that process, through iterating on the marketing, then I really honed in on not only the customer, but how to speak to that customer as well. When you were first setting up the business, what's the biggest mistake you feel like you made? And then how did you recover from that? I think it came down to the marketing, to be honest. Like to my point, when I first released the, the journal, it was a very broad offering. You know, here, here is a product that makes you happier. You know, find your purpose in life. Um, which I think is great. And I think there's a market for that. But what I've learned a lot, of course, it's marketing 101 is you need to address a specific pain point. And I didn't do a great job of that, which is why I think initially the Indiegogo didn't do that well. But once I shifted over to like my own property, namely, namely Shopify and my own own commerce, really dug into what that pain point was, namely healing from a breakup, forgiving yourself for something, feeling lost in your career, specific pain point, and then turning the marketing on based on that with the right language, the right points, you know, the right visuals and everything. That's when things really set off. So I wish I had taken more time to really think about the audience, their pain point, and how to bring that to life with the marketing itself. Would that be your your primary advice for a new Shopify owner, or is there is there some other thing that they should be aware of when when getting started? I think so. Yeah, I mean, I could talk all day about you know visual design and page layout and you know different things like that and you know, cash flow and inventory management, but but none of that really matters if you can't present your product in a clear way to the customer. If you can't give them a clear reason why they need this, all that kind of <laughs> frankly is a moot point. So yeah, I would think I think. 
for me, that was the biggest lesson that if I can go back, I would have really taken more time and nailed that. And I think anyone who does, they're going to see a, a larger uh, benefit right out, right out the get-go. On the, on the flip side of that question, what are a, a couple of things that you feel like you did really well before the store opened that allowed you to kind of scale your sales as quickly as you have? Yeah, well, I mean, I would say uh, I did a decent job of getting pre-sales. Um, I definitely knew to do that as opposed to you know being <laughs> someone who's like, oh, I'll just launch and see what happens. So I, I would give myself a little pat on the back of that for that. Although I would say I wish I had done it uh, more consistently and for longer to get those pre-sales. I think I did... Ooh, three weeks of pre-sales or something like that, which isn't terrible, but I think I could have put more oomph into it. So I did a good job there, you know, and I think I did a good job of iterating on what the product needed to be. You know, I did a lot of market research myself as far as in the space. Bought every journal under the sun, really dissected it, and I think you know that that was really helpful in you know visual design as well. I was like, you know, think about book covers. Essentially, a journal is a book. What stops someone in a bookstore? What gate? What grabs their attention? It's the cover. And I wanted something a little bit cheeky, a little bit clever. And on the cover of the new mindset journal is a bicep and a brain. Um, it kind of is a you know scroll stopper. So good job there. Did you handle all of that uh, kind of graphic design yourself, or did you hire out? I hired out just uh, freelance for the design work. Um, is that definitely something you'd you'd recommend? And where where did you go to find? those freelancers? This person was a, a local Chicago friend of mine, but I, I've hired on Upwork before for different needs. This was a kind of a longer term engagement because I also hired this individual to do the, the in, inner workings of the journal too. So it was, you know, like several month long engagement, but yeah, it was a local Chicago network. Now on the actual Shopify setup, do you have any tips for how a Shopify owner can, can kind of optimize their store to maximize sales? Oh yes. Yeah. I mean, a lot, a lot of things come down to presentation, of course. Everything I've been <laughs> kind of, you know, convincing myself to do more of right uh, live on the podcast as well, you know, presenting the pain points. Why does someone need this product? You know, I think there's lots of systems in place, certainly on Shopify, that you should be leveraging things like testimonial, gathering things like pre and post upsells and cross sells. There's apps that can be really helpful with that email capture, email marketing, drip campaigns, everything. If someone hits your site and they don't buy, how can you get them back there in some format? If you don't have systems in place, you're literally leaving money on the table, even if it's just one one person. Even if you're getting 10 visits a day, if you can get you know 5% of those to, to sign up for your email list, and then you have a drip campaign in place and you can get them back there and offer them a discount, um, you're doing yourself a big favor. So I mean, there's all kinds of different systems that you can have in place. But I think, again, number one is presentation. Do you have great imagery? Do you have a good why behind the product? Do you have social proof maybe behind it of, of testimonials or purchases? There's a lot to cover there, certainly. Do you have uh, any of any specific apps that you might want to call out that you'd recommend? I mean, principally, like the, the biggest ROI I've had, I mean, there's all kinds of little different ones that I'll use for analytics and things like that. But I mean, Klaviyo is like the go-to for email marketing. And, you know, I use that for my pop-ups and I use it for all my email drip. There, there's no higher ROI than email. And if you don't have that in place here, you know, <laughs> you're going to you're gonna want to do it. So I would say Klaviyo at a glance. Great. Uh, overall, we saw 2021 as a, as a pretty rough year for a lot of e-commerce businesses. What challenges did you face or any barriers to growth did you come up, have you come up against in the past year or so? And how did you overcome that? 
Yeah, I would throw my hat in that ring as well. 2021 was a, a year of challenge, certainly. And 2020 was such a crazy, insane year for the brand. It just it just blew up. And, you know, I put a lot into paid advertising and it just worked. And the podcast was blowing up and, you know, people were so enthusiastic. And, and COVID was, you know, encouraging people to find mental health products. And then 2021 hit and, you know, iOS and Apple and privacy changes hit and paid advertising just wasn't as effective anymore. And that was the biggest challenge I faced, certainly. I spent a lot on Facebook and Instagram and, and Google previously. And it worked really, really well. And 2021, it still worked. Uh, it just didn't work uh, as great. <laughs> so I think 2021 definitely made me go back to the drawing board. Okay, you know, it's not as effective anymore. How can I work on the messaging? How can I make the creative better? How can I make the value of this product even better? And I think that that was good. That was a good thing to do. And, you know, I think marketers and e-commerce owners are still struggling with the, the paid ecosystem, but it's forced a lot of people to come back to what is their product? Why does it matter? How can you present it in a clearer way? And uh, that's kind of how I've been addressing that challenge. Are you, are you primarily using paid social advertising um, or are there other platforms and, and different plugins that you might be utilizing for that aspect as well? Paid social, yes. Um, some affiliate advertising as well. But those are principally the, the two ways that I gain customers from a paid perspective, affiliate and, and paid social. And what social platforms are you, are you active on and, and how does that filter into your overall marketing strategy? I mean, so it's Meta, Facebook, Instagram, and and TikTok. TikTok is, of course, all the rage now. Every marketer uh, is talking about it. TikTok works well. I don't have a large social presence organically on TikTok. So that's principally uh, a paid route that we're still testing. It's a very test and learn platform because some things work, some things do not work. And then on the Facebook, Instagram side, still testing there. It's been largely not as effective as to my previous comment, but I have a large following there organically on Instagram. Having that has really helped me recoup some of the dollars that aren't immediate ROI. You know, rarely do people click and, and buy anymore. It seems, but a lot of you know people get engaged with the product and the following, and you know I've dealt developed a good flow to get them to purchase, and um, you know with email in place now, really uh, aggressively, email is really really important. I'm really all in on it. Anyone who visits my site through paid, I'm going to be offering them incentives through email, and you know trying to keep them in my ecosystem as long as possible to get them to buy. Of that paid advertising, what's the what platform is giving you the best ROI? It's it's still meta. It's still I would say of that it's still Instagram. Um, I think I think because I do have some of the the following and notoriety there and blue check and <laughs> things like that, it's it definitely still works. Just not at the scale it used to, but it's, it's definitely still a high ROI platform. And that's and that's I I guess I should have clarified in the question. That's an ROI like to actual like click to purchase as opposed to click into the ecosystem and then now they're on your email list and they'll eventually become a life life Cor- correct Act- actual attribution to the the ad spend. Great. And then I, on the flip side of that, are there any that you've you've tried that have just like given you such a poor return that you've given up on? Uh, I mean, some marketers would hate me for saying this, but on the Google side, like Google definitely works, especially if you have like like on the YouTube side, like good video creative. I just haven't seen a lot of ROI on the search side, the paid search side, because the majority of the ROI comes from branded search. People searching Case Kenny New Mindset, Case Kenny Podcast, Case Kenny Journal. I'm going to likely be winning those anyway. And I've just found that some of those dollars are, you know, some people call it like a tax, like you just got to pay your tax and do it. I just haven't seen the ROI there when compared to paid social. I still spend there just to make sure I own those branded search terms. But the ROI um, just hasn't been what I think it should be. And it can be improved, of course, but that's just my observation. 
So then all, all of this kind of filtered into you know, goes to the question of what what is your typical monthly spend on advertising? Yeah, it definitely has been fluctuating a lot recently. I mean, I'll, I'll spend between, you know, 50 and 90K a month on paid advertising, sometimes higher, sometimes lower, depending on if I'm testing a bunch of creatives, depending on if <laughs> iOS is still really impactful. I mean, I look at for instance, this year, January, February, March, April, each month has brought about its own changes as those platforms have brought about um, adjustments to their algorithm to adapt to, to iOS 14. So you're somewhere somewhere in that in that range, still seeing really solid return. And then how does that translate into what's what's the current monthly revenue? Uh, yeah, also also drastically overboard. <laughs> I'd say I'd say it's it's between it's between two hundred and three fifty K a month. I've done a couple product launches in there as well for organically. And, you know, through that, we've had some great months, some not so great months, but usually, usually in that range. And then what are the profit margins? Uh, yep. I'll also say those very, I would say usually, <laughs> usually it's, it's a, it's a 20% business net, um, which is solid. Uh, it depends on if I'm investing in inventory, but usually, usually around 20%. And then your, your products are not uh, just available on your Shopify store. They're also available on Amazon. Uh, what's the, What's the value of selling your products on multiple sites? Yeah, so I resisted Amazon for a long time, at least initially of the thinking of I wanted to own my customer journey. You know, I wanted to own their email and be able to do cross sales and upsells and follow up with that. And that engagement is limited when you sell on Amazon. You don't you don't really own that um, that journey. But you know, I've come around, and I think a lot of marketers have, and they're seeing. A lot of people are seeing, you know, twenty to thirty percent of their overall sales come from Amazon when they do Amazon plus their own e-commerce. And I'm just increasingly interested in Amazon. I added them there just to see, you know, how things would go. And organically, it just started to take off. You know, a grand a day right off the bat organically. And I think a lot of that is just due to Amazon is a you know e-commerce beast. When people are on Amazon, they're ready to buy. It's one click to buy. They're in a buying mindset. They're ready to go. Whereas on e-commerce, you know, they got to enter all their information. It's not always one click. There's a million reasons why they might not buy. So I just really wanted to go fishing where the fish are and added, added my products there. And it's been a really good decision. <laughs> Frankly, I wish I had done it earlier. And I think that's kind of what it takes in this day and age to, to be successful on e-commerce is having a, having a mix and not all your eggs in one basket. So I'll be adding future products on Amazon as well. So with with the you know the product development the daily sales the podcast the social media presence how are you managing your workflow Yeah so it's it's an interesting question because I am I am half entrepreneur half creative like I, I'm a writer podcaster by trade so you know a lot of my processes are developed around creatives the things that I need to create every week writing and emails and the podcast and things like that the business is it's quite simple itself. So like the processes in place are literally just I have my logistics. Um, I use a company called ShipBob. I have Shopify for the storefront and then I have Klaviyo for email. I've paid social and, and the rest really takes care of itself. It's it's a really simple flow. Then you know, I have some cash management things in the background to, to keep track of everything. But but otherwise, it's just a timeline of creative um, output for myself while also optimizing ad spend, you know, things like conversion rates. And then of course, my email marketing. On that financial side of things, how are you managing cash flow and sort of budgeting? What are, what are the budgeting considerations and financial planning that you have to go through with with this particular type of business? So it's a, it is a pretty simple business, especially because I don't I don't have any employees. I do freelance, so I mean I have a couple folks that you know I pay to do things every month, but I don't have payroll or anything like that. I've used tools like Workday and things like that in the past. I've used some of the tools provided to me by by Amex, for instance, because I, I bank with them and Chase. And you know it's pretty simple. You know I have like two 
set expenses. And that's really just three set. I have paid advertising, I have inventory costs, and I have logistics costs. And that's that's really it. So it's, it's pretty simple for me. And I made a big investment last year. I have enough inventory for about the next 18 months and it's all paid for and everything is profit currently. So I'm just sitting on inventory, which, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, we like, oh, you never want to sit on inventory, but there's a, a bit of a global paper shortage right now. So I did that upfront recognizing that. So it's pretty simple. The money in is, is really quite simple. So it's easy to keep tabs on. You've mentioned the podcast. We've talked a little bit about the podcast so far, but let's, let's kind of go there right now. New Mindset, Who Dis? Um, how, obviously, the podcast came first before the business, but how has the podcast helped grow the business? Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the podcast is, you know, I think a, a podcast and a podcast audience is one of the most, you know, engaging audiences you can get, especially the ones that, that listen all the way through. I mean, the, the, the podcast growth has matched the business growth. You know, every time I release a, a podcast episode, which is twice a week, you see the sales correlate alongside of it. The podcast is great for building hype. You know, I usually start to promote to my previous comments, you know, a month plus in advance to get the interest to drive pre-sale email segments. And that's all through through the podcast. And the podcast has a lot of shareability as well, especially as I've engaged more on, on the different podcasting platforms. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's the ultimate content marketing tool you can have. And then when people are interested in that, they also follow you on social, they sign up for your email list. And like you, the, the podcast really serves as the foundation for like any 360 marketing campaign you want to do. And the, the podcast gives people a reason to believe in me and the products because it is a, you know, it's an emotional mental health products. You need to kind of give them that proof. Why, why should they buy my product? Well, listen to the podcast and you'll see what you're getting. And, you know, I'm lucky to have a top you know, 50 podcasts and, you know, a voracious vocal listenership. And do you have any uh, advice for a business owner who might want to launch a podcast to help grow a following? Yeah, I mean, to, to your comment earlier, you know, uh, starting a podcast is a pretty low lift. You know, there's really not a huge investment other than some equipment and maybe some some SaaS fees on the platform side. It's It's pretty simple. I think my biggest advice is consistency. I mean, I've been doing it, obviously, as a professional podcast podcaster for almost four years. And that's two episodes a week for four years. Um, I think consistency. I saw a stat that it's like, uh, you know, 90% of podcasts have less than 10 episodes or something like that. It's just it's a tough area to grow. But if you invest in it, and you do it consistently, and you give people a reason to come back with great guests and great content, they will, but you've got to give it more than (laughs) you got to give it more than 10 episodes, you got to be consistent with it. When it comes to to suppliers and manufacturers for that for the journal, how did you choose and vet companies that you work with? Yeah, luckily for me, I have an advisor who understands the paper space quite well. And I had an intro there. Uh, With that being said, over the past couple of years, as I've invested heavily in the product um, and built out bigger and bigger contracts, I have shopped around quite a bit to understand who the best manufacturers are, where they're located abroad, overseas, in North America, in the U.S., you know, that that process has brought a lot to light as far as pricing differences, you know, bulk commitments, how you can negotiate these contracts, how you can understand cash flow within them. You know, for me, a lot of benefit has come from sticking with the same partner, particularly because I've been able to negotiate lower rates based on the bulk buys that I've done through them. So, I mean, you know, an intro goes a long way. You know, a lot of business owners are protective of their manufacturers, but if you can get a good intro, um, I think that's that's really important. And then, you know, comparing their offering, the the quality of their product, done a lot of sampling and things like that with various companies. Come back to the one that uh, allows for the the shortest amount of gap between um, inventory delivery, pricing, things like that. But I mean, your network is your best friend there, I would say. 
And you you alluded to this a little bit earlier, but obviously, you know, there's paper shortage and so many supply chain entanglements just across across the board. How have you seen those costs increase since you opened and how are you tackling those issues? Yeah, it's it's interesting stuff. I mean, yeah, you had the the canal craziness last year with literally just ships and getting your product to you even after it was manufactured and that you know, jacked up prices, which was insane. And I did a, a manufacturing run up overseas last year, which I never do. And I ended up paying about five times the amount in shipping fees on that, which was not great. And then on the paper side, yeah, it's just been a large increase. Luckily for me, when things started to go crazy in, in 2020 and early ha- the ha- half of 2021, I made a big investment. I really decided not to pay myself that much. And instead, I reinvested basically you know, 80% of that into buying future inventory. So I kind of got lucky and got around this kind of timeline where things are increasing. And hopefully, ideally, once, you know, that inventory is depleted and I'm placing my next order, the the cost will have settled back down. But I would like to say, yeah, I had the foresight of this, but I think I just kind of got lucky, frankly, with placing those upfront orders because the demand was so high. And in effect, I was able to lock in that, that low early, you know, 2020, 2021 pricing. When things like that happen with like your shipping costs, which you you thought you had budgeted for correctly, suddenly five x. Um, are you are you passing that cost on? How are you dealing with that in your in your on the sales side? I did, yeah. I, I passed I passed some of that on. I'm usually I'm usually a, a free shipping offer kind of guy. Although I've been testing a lot of different things, and my plan to with that product line that I launched was to go to market with free shipping. But ended up passing on about you know three dollars uh, to the customer, and I, I recouped that cost pretty pretty easily. So that was my initial <laughs> my initial for it because to your point, I certainly did not budget for it. It was last moment. It was hey, if you want to receive your product, you got to pay this bill, and here it is. So yeah, I passed that along to the the customer and didn't really see a huge problem with it. Have you found your customers in that regard are are price insensitive? I mean, relative to like Amazon, for instance, has given customers a lot of new expectations when it comes to pricing and returns and shipping. Um, shipping is one of those things that a lot of stops a lot of customers in their track, which is why I tend to lean towards a free op offering at a certain price. And then, you know, things like, you know, free returns, free shipping kind of does mitigate some of those sensitivities around pricing. So largely, I would say yes, if the value's there, and it's coupled with another incentive, be it buy one, get one, you know, 10% off or, you know, some kind of free shipping or free return opportunity. I guess not going back to the beginning, but giving you an opportunity to to speak back to yourself at the beginning. What's one thing you wish you knew before you launched your store? Yeah, I don't want to give the same answer again, but I think I, I really do see a lot of businesses start and, and fail. And, you know, I've had product launches that I would say weren't great. I think really nailing the why of the product is everything. If you can't answer it succinctly and simply for yourself, and if you can't present it in you know ten seconds elevator pitch, um, you're going to struggle. You can have all the systems in the world, you can have all the paid advertising in the world, but if you can't nail that why, that trigger, these are emotional triggers. I think you're going to struggle. So if I can go back and tell myself that, I would say spend more time on that. Work hard on the product, make it a great product. But I've seen a lot of average products succeed because they have such a great tangible, marketable trigger that they can speak to. So again, I don't want to harp on that, but that's I think that's the answer I would tell myself and I continue to. Are there any other uh, common mistakes you see other Shopify stores making? Yeah, I mean, namely not having systems in place uh, for a long time. I was like, I don't want to I don't want to email my customers. That's going to annoy them. The reality is it doesn't <laughs> when you do it right. I used to think that emailing a customer once a week, reminding them of a product, you know, they're going to unsubscribe and they're going to spam me and I'm never going to see them again. The reality is that's not 
true. You know, if you deliver content and content marketing in the right way, customers will buy or they don't care or they'll stick around until you have something of, of, of value to offer them. So I, I definitely think that's, that's a big one. That's going to bring us to a section of our show that we we call our Blitz Questions. Uh, often we pull these from our YouTube community. So if you're on YouTube, check out Upflip on YouTube, join the community and submit questions that we'll bring into future shows for future guests. All right, Case, we're going to get five questions. We're going to go a little rapid fire here for you to close things out and start things out. One, what is your favorite business book? Yeah, it's got to be the Lean Startup, uh, Eric Ries. Um, that's just always spoken to me about the need to pivot and pivot fast. Number two, why do you think only a handful of startups succeed? I'm a broken record, but I would say the product, the the clean, tangible why. What value does it bring? I think a lot of startups don't nail that, or at least they don't nail the the marketing of it fast enough, especially when cash flow is tight. The last few years, has there been any point when you thought of going back to your old job? No. <laughs> 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 if you could start everything over, what's the one lesson you would want to remember? I, I think the 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 biggest thing is like create a product for yourself. Like I wanted to be a, a voracious journaler. I really did. And so I created the product, the journal from that need because I found that most journals were too prompted or too unprompted. So like I'm going to create this for myself. And I think that was really important for me. And I need to always keep that in mind when creating future products. It's easy to get pulled into a, a bubble of oh, create and create and create, but there should be a, a personal touch associated with your products or your services. And I think that's really important to remember. To close it out, what's the most outlandish purchase you have made? <laughs> I would uh, I would say uh, I got a I'm a watch guy. So I mean, it was a Rolex of, of some kind. I won't say which one, but uh, it was outlandish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Case, as we, as we close out the show, I just want to give you just a chance to, to plug where folks can find you. Yeah, appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. This is a great opportunity for me to think simply about these topics. NewMindsetWhoDis.com. That's where you can find all the journals, the podcast, social, everything like that. Just all one word. NewMindsetWhoDis. Awesome. Case Kenny of, of New Mindset, uh, New Mindset Who Dis. Thanks for joining us on the show today. And uh, for those of you listening out there, make sure you check out Upflip on YouTube, check out the Upflip blog and keep listening to this podcast and send it to a friend who's got a deep interest in entrepreneurship. We've got great conversations every week with, with people that are out there doing the thing. Case, thanks again. Thank you so much. 